Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. Uh, a quick word to seniors, way to go. So awesome. That's just, uh, it, it's, it's really encouraging. As I was listening to Benji talk to you guys, I just thought, you know, we could all do to hear that, right? You know, that's just good encouragement that as we're walking along, we're learning about engaging the Lord and engaging His Word and engaging in the mission and living in community. That doesn't stop after high school. Uh, that's a lifelong pursuit for all of us. So really proud of you guys and uh, so excited about this next season that you're going to be in. Um, I feel like I'm obligated to say something about the fact that Jeff is on sabbatical. <laughs> so let me just, hey, Jeff, quick shout out, man. I hope you have a great three months and uh, we are going to miss you. I know he's really worried that we might not miss him. <laughs> so just let's all say, Jeff, we're going to miss you. Let's hear it. Yeah, yes, it's going to be horrible. <laughs> but, no, I, I'm so excited for him. Um, I got to take one a couple of years ago, and it was an amazing time. Uh, the Lord is so good when we get away undistracted and invite him to speak and to shape and to change and to sharpen. Um, so I, I know he's going to do that for Jeff. And please be praying for him earnestly. Just ask the Lord to do an encouraging work in his heart while he... Uh, steps away for a few months. Um, and we're both very, very thankful that we can even do that. That means more than we can possibly tell you. So thank you guys. Um, we are starting a new series today. Let's see, we only took, I think, two years to get through the book of Luke. So, you know, let's, let's start something new. We're going to start something a little shorter this time. We're going to do uh, first and second Thessalonians. And uh, as I was studying this week, uh, I came across some stuff that Chuck Swindoll, uh, he was seminary president when I was in school, and so I, I think a lot of him. And he said, for the longest time when he was in ministry, his recommendation for a brand new Christian was the Gospel of John. And I totally get that, and he totally got that, and it's like, that's a great book to go with. But he said he actually made a change after really studying this book, these two books, and felt like there might not be any better two New Testament letters to give to a brand new Christian than First and Second Thessalonians. So I am really excited about us getting into this. Um, I want to ask you guys, if you would, they really are short letters. You can get through. I, I actually on Audible, I listened to 1 Thessalonians on my way to church this morning. So you can get through it pretty quickly. And what if we were just to, just to soak it up, just go over it again and again and again and again? What might God do in us? Because there's a whole lot more in these two little letters than you might expect or imagine. So excited to get through these uh, letters. I want to ask you a question that might make you a little uncomfortable to begin with. But I feel like this is one of the challenges that this letter is going to give us. I do want you to keep in mind that uh, this is actually the first letter that Paul wrote to any church. Maybe Galatians beat it, 
but most likely this was the very first letter that he wrote to an existing church. And it, that church was only a couple of years old at the time. So just imagine that. It's hard for us to get there, but go back 2,000 years. Church is just starting. These are brand new Christians. And Paul writes them a couple of letters to help them understand what it would look like to live life in Christ. So that's where we're going to find ourselves. But I want to ask you a question. How would you live your life? Let's just think about tomorrow. If you knew without any bit of doubt that Jesus was coming back in July. Now here's the more important question. Is how you would live tomorrow if Jesus is coming back in July, is that any different than how you're actually living? That's kind of convicting, isn't it? But, but what we all really need to figure out is why. Why would we live differently if we knew Jesus was coming back in a couple of months? Why wouldn't we live that way every day? Now, I'm not talking about performance. I'm not talking about perfection. We all have ups and downs, good days, bad days. That's all true. But in terms of our, when you wake up in the morning and you've got an aim for that day, how much is that aim defined by the idea of Jesus coming back? Because I promise you, this book is all about Jesus is coming back. And Paul's expectation is that reality ought to define every aspect of your life and mine. So we're going to get to, as we make our way through this letter, we're going to get to make some of those evaluations of what we're doing with our life. And I have learned something about myself, and maybe you can relate to this, but our way of life reveals what we believe to be our purpose in life. Our way of life reveals, like how you and I live every day, what we do with all of those seconds and minutes and hours of every day, how we approach that tells us and everybody else what we believe our central purpose in life is. So you and I get to discover that. And what we might discover is our purpose isn't as aligned with God's purpose as we'd like it to be. And here's the beautiful thing. This is another, this is what I'm loving about this letter is, and we're going to see this later this morning. Paul is so kind and gracious, and it's just like, hey, I don't really care where you are in the process. I don't care how mature you are today. I just want to help you take a next right step. I just want to help you to grow. Just move forward, and I want that for me too. So that's what I'm going to be praying for us as we go through this letter this summer. Uh, Paul has three purposes, probably more than that, but I want to give you three general purposes for this letter for the Thessalonian church. The first is to affirm the genuine faith evident in the Thessalonian church. He started that church. He founded it. He planted it. He taught them and invested in them, but now it's a little bit later, and he is seeing some evidence of that, some fruit 
from those early uh, seeds planted. And he wants to affirm that. Secondly, it's to urge the Thessalonian Christians to continue growing spiritually. We're going to find that this church, almost more than any other church that Paul writes to, is considered a pattern. So if you were thinking, I wonder what my church ought to look like, this is it. This is the picture, according to Paul. And so, having said that, he's calling them to more. He's, he will say at one point, I want to encourage you to excel still more in all that you're doing right. And there are some things to correct and some adjustments to make for sure, but he is calling them to just keep on growing. We say that life change is a way of life. That's right. It's one of our values. So that's right in line with this letter. And then lastly, to clarify the truth and significance of Christ's inevitable return. Christ's inevitable return. I wonder how often you do think about Jesus coming back. Like unless you read a book, Left Behind, or uh, maybe there's some rumor of a war somewhere in the world, or maybe there's a global pandemic And then you kind of start thinking about, I wonder if this is the end. But do you just think about it during the mundane hours of the day? Does that really make its way into your thinking and your mindset as you go about doing what you do? For Paul, this was one of the most important things anyone could think about in everyday life. And it was part of a much bigger picture And I want to introduce you to that this morning. We're we're really, this is just an introduction actually this week and next week. So we're just getting our bearings before we get into this letter. But the return of Christ, which this letter will speak of several times, is the capstone of God's redemptive plan that's been running throughout all of history. So there's a lot of other things that have been happening along the way. And that's going to be the culmination When history is done and all things are made new and then we get to walk into eternity with our Savior. That's what that event's all about. But let me tell you, this isn't the first time there's been something kind of coming down the pike that uh, people of God might be thinking about. I want to take you through this. It began in uh, Genesis 3.15. You guys will remember after the fall of Adam and Eve, God pronounces a curse. But in the midst of that curse, God gives a promise. Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Here's what God said to the serpent. I will put enmity or hostility or conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, wonder who that might be, shall bruise your head. That's going to be a death blow. And you, serpent, you shall bruise his heel. Very beginning of redemptive history starts with a promise. And there is going to be this conflict between two seeds. That's where this plan begins. I'm just going to jump through a few things. We could spend all day just working our way from Genesis to Revelation, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. 2 Samuel 7, that's the Davidic covenant. That's where God 
I'm sorry, I skipped Abraham. Goodness gracious, how do you do that? Genesis, we'll stay there for just a second. 12, 15, and 22, that's where God calls Abraham into a relationship with him and then forms a covenant with him. And in the midst of that covenant says, you, Abraham... He's like, I know this is going to seem impossible to you, but through you, I'm going to reach the world. You're going to be the head of an entire nation, and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That was God's redemptive plan right there with Abraham. Move down a little bit further. Again, 2 Samuel 7, David, that's the Davidic covenant where he says, David, you're not just going to be a king for this life. Your position as king is actually anticipating a permanent Davidic king. One that will come and make all things right and new and rule over creation. David spoke of that king in Psalm 2. We actually studied this when we were in Luke. Where he says, the Lord said to my Lord. David understood, probably not perfectly, but he understood that there was a God the Father and a God the Son. And they were hatching out a plan that he was just a part of, but that there would be this seed coming that would, who would rule. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all prophets. And in each of their books, they speak of this uh, messianic figure in different ways, sometimes obscure, sometimes clear, but they're anticipating one who would come, who would set all things right. They talk about a new covenant, one where God's people would be an intimate, uninterrupted relationship with him, where the Holy Spirit would take up residence in them. And then they even speak of end times. And I'm sure at that time they're going, what in the world is going to be going on? We, we can think that way as well. But all of those prophets spoke of it. In the Gospels, we see The God-man show up on earth, the incarnation. We see his life, his death, and his resurrection, just as God promised, just as he promised. Then in the book of Acts, which we're going to probably refer to a fair amount, we see the inauguration and the expansion of the church, God's instrument to fulfill his promises in the church age. And then finally, in Revelation 19 through 21, we actually see the description of Christ's return. So it's in there, this huge plan. God is taking history to a destination. And and the train that, that we're riding to that destination is unstoppable. There'll be ups and downs. There'll be starts and stops. There'll be a lot of things that happen that we won't understand. But make no mistake, biblically speaking... There is no uncertainty about this day. It is coming like a freight train. And we're either going to be on it or off it. And that's all about our faith placed in Christ. That's how you get on that train. Uh, Kevin actually reminded me of a song. Speaking of trains and destinations and all that, this may ring a bell for some of you. Uh, in the senior adult category, I'm, I'm right there with you. But 1965, listen to this song, see if you uh, can remember what this is. Famous. 
you want to sing along, you can. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the deep. Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. Um, there's been a lot of remakes of that song I discovered, and get this, isn't God creative? That song was sung by Sting, of all people, at the, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think this book, uh, written to this very young church, Paul was saying, people, get ready. It's coming. It's not stopping. We're going to get there. It might be in your lifetime and it might be after. But either way, you're either on the train or you're not. And if you're on, there's a way to do life that is absolutely aligned with the purposes of God for you and for all of his people. So that's where we get to go. Um, speaking of unstoppable, when Jesus talked about the church, here's what he said in Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in some ways, the church is unstoppable. Again, there's good days and bad days. There's ups and downs. But the church will do what God intends for her to do. Um, with that uh, idea, that that song of readiness, I, I kind of felt like Paul singing to that church in Thessalonica. And um, he's, he's reminding them that this promise of Christ's return is guaranteed, it's certain, and that that certainty is meant to both comfort them and compel them. So there's a lot of hard things that we're going to find that were going on in uh, that early church but it wasn't like Paul said, hey, guys, I know it's really hard right now, so why don't you just take a break, like go on vacation or something, just get away from it all, and then when things get better, then you can come back and get to the mission. No, he says, listen, the fact that Jesus is coming, that should comfort you in the hardship and compel you to keep doing the work. Don't let up. Now's the perfect time. To tell people about a Savior. Now something interesting was happening in this early church. They believed that the coming of Christ was inevitable. Like it's definitely going to happen. But they also believed. And I think Paul believed this. That it was imminent. That it, it could be any day. That was how they lived. It's like Jesus really could show up tomorrow. And so that's, that was meant to order their lives in a particular way. But for some people, that idea of the imminent return of Christ actually brought about kind of the wrong effect. Some people uh, became kind of slackers at work. And think about it. Jesus is coming back. Let's go back to our question. Jesus come back in July. Well, like, why do I need to work hard? I mean, he's going to be here in two months, Right. That's missing the point. Um, some of them were disrupting the community. It's, it's sort of like, well, if we're going right into eternity, then, I mean, do the next two months really matter? 
So they began to disregard or dismiss or neglect the relationships that they were in. Some of them began to compromise morally. Like, I'm secure. I mean, does it really matter the choices I make, how I live, what I do, what I don't do? Does that really matter? I mean, Jesus is coming back. Then we get to be in heaven forever. So they were compromising morally. And then lastly, they were neglecting the mission. It's just like there's not a whole lot of time left anyway. So, I mean, I guess whoever gets in gets in and whoever doesn't, doesn't. That was, that was happening in this early church. And Paul wanted to address it. Now, he did it so gracefully. Uh, write down 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We will get there in due time. But I want you to hear uh, a, a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart for these people. He said, um, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak and be patient with them all. That's kind of that idea I mentioned a minute ago. It's just like, hey, wherever you are, maybe you are slacking at work. Maybe you are compromising morally. Maybe you have been neglecting the mission. Okay, let's just be honest. Let's just, let's start today. Where are you? What's going on? Where have you kind of backed off? And you can start afresh today. It's a new day. Here we go. The mission of God is on. Jesus is coming back. Here we go. That was Paul's heart for this church and for this church. Beautiful, beautiful timing for us. Um, This is a letter, and so we can kind of think of Paul and two other guys as pen pals for the church in Thessalonica. Um, again, this is the first letter that he wrote, so it's not like there's this long history. When we get to some of the later letters that he wrote, he's kind of in the groove there. But this is, this is like, okay, I planted a church. I'm separated from the church. I'll get to that in a second. And I want to reach out to them. And uh, there's no planes, trains, and automobiles. It's like he's just got to get word to them, so he sends a letter. Look in verse 1, and we get the greeting. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Um, It struck me that he is writing to literally the church of Thessalonica. That's a completely foreign idea to us, isn't it? You'd have to write to 200 or 300 churches or whatever if you were just writing to Rutherford County. Uh, He's writing to the church of Thessalonica. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of context for how this all came about. Um, Paul is on his second missionary journey. This is covered in the book of Acts from chapter 1536 to 1822. So... you know, from a Bible study methods perspective, that's where understanding our Bible and how the different parts relate to each other is really good. So you can read about the journey in the book of Acts. And then you can read about the letter that Paul sent to the church in Thessalonica while he was traveling around. Now, there's a map here, and that just shows you the trek of this second missionary journey. To your right, it starts in Antioch. It goes up into Derby, 
and then Lystra, so it's heading to the west, and then uh, to Troas. And then uh, I'll talk about it in just a second, but there's a big jump over to Philippi from Troas, and I'll tell you why. Uh, but from there then to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and then back to Jerusalem. That's the full loop that uh, Paul and these other two men took. This letter happens in the midst of that, and this is all taking place um, in the late 40s, early 50s A.D., so right in the middle of the first century. Silvanus, um, or also called Silas, he is accompanying Paul. Um, there was, uh, there's so much great stuff in the book of Acts, but uh, if you know, Paul and Barnabas, who made the first missionary journey together, they had a dispute. And they basically came to terms and said, you know what, we're going to need to go our own separate ways. Um, so Barnabas took a guy named John Mark with him. Paul took a guy named Silas with him. And they went to different places. So the second missionary journey was Paul and Silas. Silas would have been like a peer for Paul, a colleague. He was just going with him. They were a team. He was very respected in the church in Jerusalem. So he was known and really uh, admired by the early apostles. They pick up Timothy in a town called Lystra. It's likely that Paul led Timothy to Christ during his first missionary journey. So he met Timothy then, led him to Christ. Timothy was growing while Paul was away. And when Paul came back through, now Timothy is a respected young man within the church of Lystra. And so he says, I want that guy to come along with us. So he invites Timothy to join them. And off they go. Um, Along the way, they, they get an unexpected assignment from God. And, uh, man, there are so many di different directions we could go here. But they are so attentive to the Holy Spirit. And going back into the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit would say, I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to go there. I do want you to go there. So read with me, or, or just listen. I'll read it to you. Acts 16. Uh, this is once they were in Troas. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So keep the map in mind. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, up north. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go, uh, Luke is writing, so we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what we're reading about is literally the move, the jump of the gospel from Asia to Eastern Europe. And had Paul not gotten that vision, he probably would have stayed in Asia, at least at that point. So he gets this vision. He's called to Macedonia, and Philippi is the first stop in Macedonia. So they make their way there. Pick up in Acts 17, 1 through 4. When they had passed through Amphipolis 
and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Paul and his colleagues were beaten and abused in Philippi. So they left, and that, that led them on to Thessalonica. Um, there, there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And we're told several people responded positively, and that was how the church of Thessalonica was born. Now, next week, we're going to look at the larger response of the community, and it was pretty rough. It actually led to Paul and uh, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy being uh, shipped out of Thessalonica uh, because it was a, they were afraid that they were going to lose their lives. It was a rough place. But remember, the gospel, the church, God's redemptive plan is unstoppable. And despite all the opposition, you see this young, vibrant church emerge in a pretty crazy culture. Uh, Thessalonica was founded in 315 by Alexander the Great's general, a guy with the last name of Cassander. He named it after Alexander the Great's stepsister, Thessaloniki. So that's where you get Thessalonica. Um, That was in 4th century BC. By AD 44, there was a lot of conflict between Rome and Greece. And uh, by 44, the, the city of Thessalonica became a free city. That just meant that Rome didn't put a lot of military there and control everything that they did. They allowed them to kind of operate as Macedonians, but they had to make sure that they kept the peace and continued to point people to revere Rome, just not conflict in any way with Rome. Spiritually speaking, it was a pluralistic culture. And that just basically means there were a whole lot of gods and people worshiping everything under the sun. Along with that, it was incredibly decadent. So morally, there was just a lot of other stuff that would conflict with Christianity. But a lot of those other religions or cults, they had all kinds of practices that biblical Christianity would consider immoral. That's the culture where this church is planted. In the middle of a lot of opposition, a lot of hostility, a lot of immorality. Um, The people in that city might have said, hey, if you like Jesus, if you want to worship him, totally cool. We'll just add him to the list. Like we've got this huge list of all these people that you can worship, including the emperor of Rome. So just put him on the list. How well do you think that worked with Christianity? Not well. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, absolutely no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus set himself apart. He said, I can't be one among many. I am the only way. Which also meant to that culture, he is the king. He is the emperor. He is the creator. He is the ruler which puts Christianity and Jesus Christ in direct conflict with Rome. So there's a lot of hostility that gets turned up in Thessalonica as the gospel is proclaimed. We're going to learn more about that next week. But um, 
Paul, after he greets the Thessalonians, he uh, offers a prayer. And we're going to see that prayer is very important to Paul, uh, missionally, but certainly with this church. Pick up with me in verse 2. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So a lot more than good wishes. And I, I, I don't want to come across as like mean-spirited or whatever, but you know how we just kind of, it just sort of, something really bad happens and it's like thoughts and prayers, we're thin, sending out thoughts and prayers to you guys. Or I think more recently there's sort of a trend of, hey man, I'm like sending you some good vibes. Okay, that's not what Paul is doing here. Uh, I I don't even know what good vibes are. (laughs) And I don't know what that does for anybody. I mean, it might be an encouragement. Like, you could just say, I'm thinking about you. That'd be cool, right? But but isn't there something in us that we, we want to give something of substance where we see suffering and hardship and pain and difficulty? And good vibes ain't going to cut it. Paul is praying for them. This is as central to who he is and what he's about and what every other Christ follower ought to be about as can be. So let's look at this prayer very quickly. First of all, I want you to notice the persistence of prayer when it comes to Paul. He mentions he does this always, constantly. He gives this idea of remembering that you just sort of think it's on his mind all the time. He carries it with him everywhere he goes. So there is a persistence. And isn't that exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do? He says in Luke 18, 1, they, that is his people, ought to always pray and not lose heart. Which tells me that It's really easy to lose heart when it comes to prayer. Not only was there a priority or a persistence, there's a pattern. He says he thanks, gives thanks to God always. He mentions God in his prayers and he remembers them before God and uh, the Father. So there is this active pattern of actual interaction. It's not like just a passing thought. Like, I thought of Bob today. Good vibes, Bob. Right? No, it's like, I actually have access to God Almighty as a child of His. So when I think of Bob, I talk to God about Bob. I remember him. I make mention of him. I bring needs for him. I celebrate him. That's what we get to do for each other. And it's a huge thing. That's not just a a nice thing. It is absolutely foundational to our life as a church. Finally, um, there's a priority here. I just want you to notice the personal pronouns Paul is really pointing to these people, and I'm sure he's got names attached to those people. It wasn't just a generic, and that's okay to pray generically, but 
man, I think he was thinking very specifically of some people. He, he highlighted and celebrated some specific qualities. He mentions your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Real quickly, work, labor, and steadfastness all point to exertion. So Christianity is not this passive, just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. It's like, man, there is a work to do, and I'm called to do it with all of my heart until he comes back. And it looks like work, which there, that work is just more like a generic reference to deeds, actions. It's just like, you know, I got to go cut the grass. I'm working. Labor actually has a connotation of pain, difficulty, suffering, hardship, opposition. And what Paul saw in them was they were laboring, suffering out of love. And then lastly, steadfastness of hope. Despite all of the difficulties that they experienced, they did not lose heart. They just kept looking to that day that was coming where Jesus would make all things new. That was their hope. Not that it would get easier right then. And not that everything would go their way right then. They were looking to a day when things truly would be made new once and for all. All three of those qualities are attached to um, the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that modifies all three. And I thought of uh, Jesus' words in John 15, 5, where he says, apart from me, you can do what? Say it again. Nothing. Nothing. Like, let's not ever let the thought cross our mind that we can do something for God. What if we said, God, first of all, what do you want me to do? And then please help me. Because <laughs> I can't do it without you. That is a biblical mindset as we go about the mission. I think about these folks, and they're not superstars. They're not tougher than your average church. They're young and immature. They've got a lot to learn, but they're just doing what they know to do until they're told more. So isn't that great for all of us, wherever you are? You don't have to be more than you are today. You just got to grow Toward more as you're going. It's a testimony not to what a very talented group of people can do. It's a, it's a testimony to people who are desperate for God. And uh, to know Him and to make Him known. I want to give you a great example. This was from an article just written in February. And uh, so encouraging. And I think, you know what? We could be like this. If we're desperate enough, the title of the article is Meet the World's Fastest Growing Evangelical Movement on Earth. I wonder where it is. Any ideas? Look at the map. About 20 years ago in Iran, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background was between five and 10,000 people this uh, one person said. 
Today, that's between 800,000 to 1 million. Obviously, this is a per capita kind of thing here. The article goes on to say, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. None of this is good for a regime that depends on a belief in Islam to stay in power. Crackdowns have been increasingly harsh, especially over the past five years. But evangelism hasn't slowed. Despite the pandemic, ministries have reported growing growth in engagement and interest in the gospel via social media outreach or personal evangelism among Christians inside Iran. One of those places is Nima Alaz... Oh, gosh. Alaz... <laughs> Jeff, where are you when I need you, man? Come on. <laughs> we'll just go with Nima. Isn't that what Jeff would do? We'll just go with Nima. <laughs> he has an online Bible study. And he uh, started with 40 people. It's now up to 600. Isn't that awesome? I don't think this guy's a hot shot. I think he's desperate. I think he's just begging God to use him to reach people in a really hard place. And it's gotten a little harder around here recently, hasn't it? Maybe, maybe God wants us to lean right into that. Desperate for him. And just say, Lord, you use me any way you like. Just give me a chance to tell somebody about Jesus and let's see what happens. That's where we are as we get into this book. We're no different than these Thessalonians. It's a different time, different era, different circumstances, same calling, same mission. I think God wants to do something big in us and through us. So let me give you just a second here. Um, I don't know what about this got your attention I don't know what God is doing in your life right now but I know that he wants you and I to walk intimately with him and to be fully engaged in the mission so take a moment and just ask him if, if you know him you have the Holy Spirit just say Holy Spirit show me the way how do I need to grow where do I need to Make some adjustments. How can I be more engaged in what you're doing than I am already? How can I live tomorrow like you're coming back in July? Right? Take a minute and pray about that.
Lord, thank you for the Thessalonian church. Thank you for those faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who trusted in, believed the very same gospel that we believe, who had the very same mission that we have today. Lord, thank you for their model. Thank you for the pattern that we can follow. And uh, Lord, thank you for preserving their story so that we could be encouraged and challenged and built up in our faith. And Lord, however you're leading all of us individually, I pray that you would also lead us corporately, that as a church, we would have a clear sense of direction from you about what it looks like for us to be your church right here, right now. We thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and kindness toward us, your generous provisions to us. And and Lord, the, the meaning and purpose that comes along with spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. So thank you, Lord, for today, for this morning. And uh, we're excited about what you're going to do in the days ahead. Thank you in Jesus' name.